So we're all really connected in these water fights um, because it impacts us um, and it impacts Native people. And so almost as soon as colonization starts, there's this effort to try to control it. So you see the levee systems come up, you see um, the different water projects, the drainings of lake. Chinook salmon, are they thrived and survived, right? They're ready to be returned back home. We went to all those meetings and we kept saying the same thing. Take the concrete out. Let the water flow naturally. That's not how we think. We don't think in those capitalistic, those neoliberal, those <laughs> settler colonial terms. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast will center Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, the present, and the future. A final note before we begin, this podcast may contain graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. You're listening to the third part of our third episode, Weapons of Mass Destruction, Dams, and Colonization. Welcome to part three, Indigenous Self-Determination. My name is Brittany Arona. I am a Hoopa Valley tribal member and a PhD candidate in Native American Studies and Human Rights at UC Davis. There's the Central Valley Project, which is federally run, and then there's the State Water, Water Project, which is state run. But, you know, the State Water Project has, and the Delta Conveyance, has really threatened the way in which the Delta um, looks and how it continues to be. So the Delta used to be, I'm in, I'm based in Sacramento and Nisanami Walk territories. And the way that um, Miwok and my do friends of mine describe it is that this area was like a marshland, essentially, right? Like it's wet um, in the winter months, and it provides a lot of um, fisheries and fowl and um, different animal life and like really sustained these people in this area and throughout the Central Valley. So it goes all the way down to the Central Valley when I was talking about those lakes, um, really sustains native people in the Central Valley regions. Um, and then it has like this cyclical cycle, right? And so the Delta goes out into the Bay. And so there's this like huge marshland and beautiful place in, in the state. And so almost as soon as colonization starts, there's this effort to try to control it. So you see the levee systems come up, um, you see um, the different water projects, the drainings of lakes, uh, Tulare Lake is drained for agricultural purposes. And so the agriculture in California is really based in this drainage of this marshland area. Um, and so the Delta Conveyance Project is really the two tunnels and it's a way of making water deliveries into Southern California um, and different regions and basically sucking this area dry for lack of a better term. 
But all of these waterways end up connecting. The Trinity River diverts down into these projects. So the Trinity River diverts to the Central Valley project. Um, and so our waters intermingle with um, Central Valley waters to be delivered to Southern California and agricultural interest. So we're all really connected in these water fights um, because it impacts us um, and it impacts Native people. Hi, I'm Beth Rose Middleton Manning. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Native American Studies at UC Davis within Putwin Homelands. I am Afro-Caribbean and Eastern European, uh, born and raised in Sierra Miwok homelands outside of Jackson and Pioneer, California. The current system of dams that we have, especially the older dams, many of them were built with no attention to indigenous peoples, indigenous lifeways, indigenous rights, or ecosystems, in-stream flows, um, and species health. So that right there is a foundational problem. Because I'm not necessarily saying that hydropower is always bad or that all dams are bad, but the way dams have been constructed and managed, I think is, is really problematic. And so that itself is a foundational issue. I mean, I think maybe it could be studied whether or not you could build some sort of a dam in order to generate hydropower or to hold water for drier times of year in a way that still allowed for fish passage, uh, for other species migration, for flows to sustain a whole range of riverine species, including human beings. So I think those questions were never asked. Um, right now I'm looking at a dam in Alaska and when it was established, it was just it was okay to completely dewater the river. So there's actually no flow in the river. And there's a process now to try to restore that and address that issue. But I think it's an extreme case of the fact that like the inputs to the studies that called for putting in these dams and the engineers that designed them, they really had paid no attention at all to indigenous peoples, indigenous homelands, and to ecosystems. Also, the system as a whole is really unsustainable in terms of this mass development of urban spaces in areas without a lot of water. So that's also something to consider. This history of land theft, land seizure for the development of these hydro projects to facilitate the growth of urban areas downstream, you know, really on the backs of indigenous peoples at the headwaters. Very, uh, really painful to go through, to go through all of these files and recognize that so few people knew about this history in the area where I grew up in broadly in the, in the Sierra foothills and mountains. So, in that project, just documenting what happened to these lands, the flooding of those lands, and then, you know, putting it front and center that many people, especially, um, for example, looking at Mountain Maidu, didn't have a collective land base. There was no recognized land that ever transferred to them to address the non-ratification of treaties or the seizure and flooding of their lands for these hydro projects. So really putting that front and center and saying, what do we, what can we do about it now? And there happened to be this process, this settlement between California Public Utilities Commission and Pacific Gas and Electric following PG&E's bankruptcy proceedings back in the early 2000s. And they settled and agreed on this structure by which PG&E would put into conservation ownership 
and or divest itself of 140,000 acres of lands that were non-essential for the production of hydropower. But these are directly the lands that were taken from our ancestors 100 years ago. And why are we not part of the process or at least at the table in determining what's going to happen to these lands? So this advocacy reverberated, I think, from different tribes around the state with the same central issue of their homelands being given away again without any recognition um, or consideration of transferring it back to tribal people. So the Maidu Summit was successful in, in advocating for lands and at least, let's see, 3,500 acres in Tasmam Koyam was transferred and then there are other parcels around what is now known as Lake Almanor or Big Meadows that were also transferred or in the process of being transferred. So, so that's some of the, the history with the flooding of allotment lands and the advocacy for the recognition of that context. Today with the dams, it's really difficult to maintain like cultural life ways and healthy river systems and you know and healthy environment with the dams in place um you know salmon can't do their runs um, because of the drought and because of water mismanagement this year we had a fish kill of juvenile salmon and while juvenile salmon is not as visible as adult Chinook salmon and coho salmon, that's a whole generation lost, which is devastating. And a lot of people that I know, I mean, myself included, I mean, I get emotional about it because it's very, it's, it's, you know, you try for so long and so you work so hard and you hope for things so much that, that the government or corporations or something will be like, yeah, we'll we'll get rid of these dams um, because it's destroying our culture. But over time, you kind of just realize how little that matters in the world that we're living in that doesn't prioritize reciprocity or life, really. I mean, not to sound cynical or, but the world that we live in is not one that prioritizes those things. It's all about making money. It's capitalism. It's um, globalization. It's all that. How are we going to get these products out to the world? Like, how are we going to do this? And that means that Native people suffer and have their lands dispossessed, from, continuously dispossessed from them, um, have their waters taken. Um, and I think to make a better world <laughs> is to, you know, give land back to Native peoples. When we say that, people are like, well, why do I have to give my land? And it's like, for something, you don't even own land. 45% of the lands in California are owned by the federal government. So you're not losing anything by having those lands given back. And land back doesn't mean that non-Native people are going to be kicked out. Um, that's not within our spirit of reciprocity. That's not how we think. We don't think in those capitalistic, those neoliberal, those <laughs> settler colonial terms, like people aren't gonna be kicked out. It's really a reciprocal relationship that we're trying to build with other people too. It's like, hey, come join us. Come learn about cultural burning. Come learn about how salmon species are essential to your river system and why that matters. 
I see a lot of that and hopefulness in that realm. Obviously, with the dams removed, it'll be great. And hopefully our rivers will be thriving. But it won't be the end of these discussions. Then it's on to, you know, how do we continue to do water restoration in this area that has been plagued by mining and mercury and is still dealing with section dredge mining, which is really bad um, for the river system. So we're also continuously trying to solve these problems that settler colonialism has created. And again, it goes back to people think that things are in the past, like hydroelectric mining is, the, is in the past. That still affects our environment today. And it really matters. And abandoned mine lands really affect our environment today. So we're all really connected in these water fights um, because it impacts us um, and it impacts Native people. Aloha mai kako. My name is Sheridan Noilani Inamoto. And I am of Kanaka Maoli or Native Hawaiian, uh, Japanese, Scottish, African ancestry. And I was born and raised in Tongva land which is also known as Los Angeles or Southern California. If you know about watersheds and how we get our water, which we don't, um, but we need to start changing that. And we need to, I, I, my dream is if I ask anybody on the street at any age, if I ask you where your water comes from, they should be able to tell me that it doesn't just come from my, my tap. It doesn't just come from my faucet. It doesn't just come from my, you know, um, Fountain in my house, but really telling me like, no, my rivers are this, my waters are this. Um, I know where my mountains are, where we get our snow, rainfall, and where a lot of our fresh water begins. It's mountains. Sports fishers in Aotearoa or New Zealand heard about what was happening and actually contacted the tribe and said, you know what, we actually have your salmon that you believe to be gone. They still exist. They're still thriving. They're existing in our watershed, very similar to the ones that we would find in Shasta and the Winnemum. Um, and I see Winnemum Wayaket or Winnemum, which is also known as the McLeod River. Um, the Winnemum are named. They are the middle water people. So to know that in a place in the Pacific, in Oceania, in Aotearoa, in the South Pacific, that Chinook salmon, are, they thrived and survived, right? they're ready to be returned back home. It was amazing. And, and the film Dancing the Salmon Home really, really uh, documents that journey of the Winnema went to seeing their salmon and their trip to Aotearoa. Hello, my relatives. My name is Tina Calderon. I am Gabrielino Tongva, Ventureño Chumash, NUM. As I start seeing the movement of taking down these dams, um, we're talking about revitalizing the LA River too. Um, unfortunately, they, they very reluctantly wanted to hear the natives' perspective on it. They went um, for the LA River, they went um, you know, to every neighborhood asking what would you like to see along the river, never taking into account that there was originally a native village in that area. What would we like to see? Um, but we inserted ourselves, we went to all those meetings and we kept saying the same thing, take the concrete out, let the water flow naturally. 
part of the colonizer's perspective um, was not only the greed, but also about control. Control of the peoples, control of the plants, control of the waters. And so when we start thinking about the dams, like our LA River that's been concreted, for me, that's about controlling that relative, that water who has a spirit and wants to flow. And they say it's because, you know, there's homes now built all along the river. And if that water expands, which it has many times, um, it'll wipe out those homes. But why didn't we think of not putting our homes so close to the river? Why didn't we respect that river and know that although we always lived amongst the water sources, along the water sources. We were never on top of it. You know, we always gave it that space. We knew that it had a, it had a spirit of its own and there would be times that it would swell and there would be times that it would be very little water. So we know that this system isn't working. Uh, it's time now. It's time to go back to those original teachings and let the water flow. That we need to survive. Got the Joe Calderon. I represent Chumash and Tongva and Chicano. And I'm from Chatsworth. You know, here we are in, in, in the Los Angeles area, Los Angeles County. And um, before the coming of the Spaniards, there was a lot of uh, estuaries, a lot of rivers, a lot of streams that came from the mountains. And as my wife said, you know, nobody ever built the villages right next to the rivers because, you know, that's how you pollute your river. That's how you pollute your water is by being right on top of it, right, right next to it. You know, the geologists would, will always say, you know, this was such a perfect environment before, before the Europeans came. So during, during those ancient times, the Lancaster area was almost like the plains, the Great Plains, you know, except for they, these were the upper plains of our area, which connected that area, Lancaster, going into Arizona and going into the Vegas area, you know. So thousands of years ago, when there was water in those areas, animals would migrate through there. So we had the upper plains in Lancaster where the animals would migrate and they would go through an area and end up in what is now called Bakersfield. So um, in the areas that we've dug up, the village sites were always alongside the mountains and uh, nowhere near the waters. <clears throat> but then, you know, we come into uh, the era where this became Los Angeles and Mulholland went up into that area, into the Lancaster area, and drained the water from that area to build up Los Angeles. Because um, the water in Los Angeles is what they were using to drink. Uh, La Placita in Los Angeles, if you, ever, if you ever walk through that little plaza, you'll see that when you're walking through that, that uh, brick, brick street brick road there there's water that's coming up through them bricks you know and that's the that's the ancient stream that used to run through there you know that its memory is still there and it still comes up you know but what did what did the people of los angeles do 
they wanted to cut it and dam it up so they can build a city there. Same here in San Fernando. We had areas that were, um, um, what are they called? Hot springs. And Department of Water and Power blew up those hot springs to close them down. You know, they did the same thing in Lake Los Angeles. If, you, if you've ever been to Lake Los Angeles, it's not a lake. At one time, there was a lot of water coming out there, but Department of Water and Power went there and blew that system up to close it down. You know, we're, we're in a semi-desert, and greed has caused overbuilding here. And um, the water that we get is from the Owens Valley. It's not our water. It belongs to a tribe up there, and we're taking their water forcibly. And um, today, if you look into that, to that lake, it's drying up. So once that water's gone, what are we going to do? You know, we're overpopulated, and we're still building more and more homes. And if you've ever seen homes being built, you have these big water trucks that they have that are spraying water all over the place every single day and refilling those trucks up, you know, and, and we're losing our water. We're, you know, we're depleting Mother Earth of her blood, you know, what keeps us alive. Well, they have a solution for that too, right? They say um, good after bad, <laughs> it's bad after good. I don't know because now they want to take from our ocean and they want to do desalination plants. So if we're not controlling this water, let's go control that water. None of this is the perfect solution. Also, the water system that we have now isn't that old. <laughs> the 1960s wasn't that long ago. And that's kind of when it starts. Um, it's within the realm of lifetimes for people. My dad was born in 1961. Like, you know, it's not, the, we tend to think of these things as something that has always been here. And that's just not true. Um, and so it requires creative solutions beyond doing the status quo. And I don't have anything against farmers. Um, but I would like to see more creative solutions that move away from capitalist concerns. I think we have to remember the, the racism that was inherent in scientific decision-making for so much of our history. You know, Indigenous voices were not heard, not listened to, not invited. There was no process of free prior and informed consent. There was no, no opportunity created for thinking about other worldviews or ways of relating to a place or living in a place. But I just think as kind of mainstream science understands more about the impacts to the environment, to the ecology, to river systems of dams, that it becomes easier to advocate for their removal. And it mirrors a lot of what tribes have been saying for a long time, that the dams are harmful, that they're impacting entire systems, that they're uh, you know, hampering people's ability to carry out traditional instructions and and to follow their their traditional responsibilities and lifeways in these places. So I feel like in many cases, those feelings, both from the indigenous aspect and environmental aspect, are coming together to support dam removals. Without salmon, you're not going to be physically nourished. 
You're not going to be mentally nourished. Now I have to go out and search into unfamiliar grounds for my world ideology. The modern society called the United States of America does not understand. It's because of the erasure that has happened and has continued to happen today. The Kudu tribe is the second largest tribe in California with, over, with approximately 3,600 tribal members. We caught less than 50 fish last year. A million fish returning to the Klamath River Basin. And now it's less than 5%. What kind of food replaced that salmon? It is dangerous. And it has such a huge impact. And we have to wake up to what is happening. You'll go to these sections of the river and all of a sudden it looks, it's a river like water like disappears. And it's not really gone. It's just being funneled in these huge pipeline or water line tubes coming off the mountain, covered up, hiding, right? But it's so, um, what's around it, it just seems so dead. And you really see it. And then you can't help but think, wow, when the fire, you know, and the dry brush, and then like, oh, I wonder why the fires just sort of devastated the area because it was so easy. Um, the life of the water that brings to these areas um, when they're freed, man, it's so great and also prevents the devastation of wildfire fires even going even more so. And I learned a lot from Chief Kalinsis, too, around the relationship with fire and water in the Winnemum. So all of these lifeways, indigenous lifeways, teachings, uh, for me personally, specifically from Chief Kalinsis and the Winnemum went to, have really been my um, guide in the work that I do and continue to do. And I personally strive to be in alignment with that and do my best in that. You have been listening to Challenging Colonialism. In this third part of our series on dams as weapons of mass destruction, you have heard from Brittany Arona, Ron Reed, Beth Rose Middleton Manning, Sheridan Inamoto, and Tina and Joe Calderon. Challenging Colonialism is produced by myself, Martin Rizzo Martinez, a historian, and Daniel Stonebloom, a public school administrator, and it is produced with support from the California State Parks Foundation. Music in this episode by G. Gonzalez and Hilson Parker.